Uh, let's ask God to help us understand his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that even today uh, news of Jesus' birth and what it means might be for us news of great joy. And we pray that understanding this good news and trusting your Son, we would know hope. We would know your love and our hearts would be turned to you for life. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, this is a busy time of year for many of us. Work, parties, end of year, dues, school events. It's a busy at church as well, isn't it? The concert and carols, which are really good. And, of course, then there's shopping. You know, we go and go and go, and then Christmas itself is upon us, and through the fog of busyness and tiredness, we try and focus on what Christmas is about. So to help you get your head into the Christmas that is the birth of Jesus space, in distinction from the Christmas the family reunion space or Christmas the entertaining triumph as we reproduce the MKR menu space or Christmas the start of my holidays early space, to help you get your head into the Christmas that is the birth of Jesus space, we're going to listen together to Zachariah's prophecy that you just heard read. Uh, Zechariah, led by the Spirit, nails the meaning of Jesus' birth, the birth anticipated in the announcement to Mary by the angel Gabriel and then recorded for us in Luke chapter 2. And listening to Zechariah, we can learn what Jesus came to do and why he did it and what that means for us. But who is uh, Zechariah and why did he get the gig of making known the meaning of Jesus' birth, his coming? Uh, well, as you heard, Zachariah's a righteous Israelite, a priest and getting on in years. He's the one to whom God promised a son in his old age, a son who would be John the Baptist. And though he was righteous, he met the announcement of John's birth and ministry with a weary unbelief. He wanted some reassurance. He'd been waiting a long time. He wanted something other than the word to know the word was true. How shall I know this? He'd ask Gabriel. And as a consequence, Zacharias just spent many months dumb, unable to speak. But now his wife, Elizabeth, has delivered and in obedience to the angelic word, he's named the boy John. And Zacharias' heart is filled with joy at the satisfaction of his longing for a child, with awe at God's mighty power that can give birth and still and loosen his tongue wonder at God's kind faithfulness even in the face of his faithlessness. God's faithfulness is no longer a doctrine he's committed to in the abstract. It's a truth now he experiences with every cry of his baby, an overwhelming conviction, and he praises God. He speaks as one who knows that what God speaks should be believed a lesson expressed in his prophecy which draws richly on what God had spoken through the prophets in the past. And he speaks as one filled with the same spirit who spoke through those prophets, empowered by the Lord to speak the truth of God to God's people. So what does the spirit say is happening in the two conceptions the angel Gabriel announced in the birth of John and in the soon-to-be birth of Jesus? 
Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. The first thing he says is that these births are the work of the Lord, the God of Israel himself acting, coming to his people to save them. As God had promised in Isaiah 40 to come and comfort and deliver his people, so God was now doing. His people weren't alone or forgotten. The Lord himself is now acting to redeem. And that word redeem was a rich word for Old Testament believers. The Lord had redeemed his people from Egypt, rescued them from genocidal oppression. The Lord had redeemed his people from Babylon, rescued them from the exile their sin had brought upon them. And now a subject people of the Romans with invaders in their land the Lord was again acting to redeem them. And he was going to redeem them, rescue them from oppression, give them freedom by the promised descendant of David, the promised Messiah. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old. Now a horn of salvation is an Old Testament image of strength, of mighty power. Just they were an agricultural people and just as a mighty bull with its horns was a terrifyingly powerful creature, so this deliverer from the house of David would be powerful, strong enough to vanquish their enemies and establish his rule. God was giving them this ruler now, not in the birth of Zechariah's son, but in the birth of another Jesus. And he was doing it in faithfulness to his promise to and about David given by his prophets. Now there are many promises in scripture about a descendant of David, but all start with the Lord's foundational commitment to David, the covenant he made with David in 2 Samuel 7. <coughs> there the Lord promised us, Clinton read, that he would raise up one of David's offspring to sit on David's throne and that the Lord would establish this one's reign as an eternal one and through him give his people peace. And that promise to David was itself an expression of the Lord's faithfulness to even all the promises, to the promises, the covenant he had made back with Abraham in Genesis 17, that the Lord would be Abraham's God and the God of his descendants and will give them this land of promise. In the birth of Jesus, God is acting to save in faithfulness to his covenant promise to be the God of his people. The promises that were the foundation of Israel's existence and the source of its hope over the dark years of judgment, exile and occupation. And this salvation that's promised is more than liberation from the Roman invaders. The language of Zechariah's prophecy picks up the promises of the end times, the promises of the age to come. For Israelites, history was divided. There was this present evil age and then there is the age to come, that time of promise. So this salvation would be the realisation of what was always intended but which Israel's sin had prevented, that we save from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. See, now in the coming of this one, what was spoken of, say, throughout the Old Testament, example in Leviticus 26, would be realised. 
God would be able to dwell among his people at peace with them. They would know that peace. And that peace is not just the cessation of war, but it involves it. It's the secure occupation of the land of promise where they can enjoy all the bounty the Lord bestowed, fruitfulness of field and womb, and no enemy would ever again challenge their possession, would ever again drive them from the land and the Lord's presence ever again oppress them. They will be able to serve him without fear and be secure because they will be changed. They'll be able to serve him, it says, in holiness and righteousness. And that was the change spoken of in Jeremiah 31, where God's law in that future time will be written on the hearts of his people. And Ezekiel 36, where God says he would give them a new heart and move them to walk in his ways. That time promised 500 years ago, more, would now be brought about in this birth. Zechariah says God is now bringing this salvation. That time is arriving. And the role of his own son, John, confirms that it's this great end time salvation. The Spirit says God is working in the birth of these babies. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. John's the one who will be the messenger prophesied to come in Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3, the one who will declare the coming of the Lord himself to save his people. John's coming means the Lord is coming to save. And the Lord is coming to save, it says, through forgiving the sins of his people. The sin that had brought them under judgment, the sin that had lost them the promised land, the sin that meant that even now they, ruled, they lived under the rule of the idolatrous Romans. That sin, as promised in Jeremiah 31 and Micah 7, would be dealt with once and for all. Listen to Micah 7. Who is a God like you, says Micah, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. This salvation means that for God's people their sins will be gone forever, never dredged up by God again. And the Lord's people's experience of the coming mighty Saviour, this descendant of David, the one through whom the Lord is saving his people, also confirms that the salvation this one brings is the promised salvation of the end, the age to come. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This one's coming is like the rising of the mighty sun, shedding its light on all on which it shines, dispelling darkness and fear. This one brings the light of God. And the darkness he drives away is the darkness of ignorance of the living God, the darkness of fear, the darkness that rebellion against God, turning away from God, has spread across the earth, an oppressive, life-constricting darkness now dispelled. And this one dispels the shadow that death and the fear of death casts over all humanity. 
And the light of his coming, it says, will direct all who receive his light into the way, the path of peace. That is in his light. People can live at peace with the Lord, no longer estranged and alienated from him, no longer fearful of the judgment of the almighty righteous God, but able to live in relationship with him, able to live in his presence, to know the richness of his life and love, to have his truth in their hearts at peace with the living God and so at peace with ourselves with no accusation and no regret. Zechariah's words thrill with a conviction that what God has promised his people, the salvation they longed for for hundreds of years, the salvation of the end time that they would never lose for it was fall and final, was coming now in the Saviour the Lord was raising up. This one wouldn't be another flawed and failed human Saviour who might improve life for a while, bring a moment of worldly peace and prosperity which Israel would then lose again as they descended into sin. No, this one will bring complete salvation as sin would be dealt with, forgiven, and death would lose its fearful hold and his people changed. Now this is a big call, big claims that Zacharias, spirit-inspired, is making for this child yet to be born. And it's claims when we understand them that we long to be true because we want peace and life and truth. And they're claims actually that will be tested in the story that follows. The story that starts with the birth of Jesus in the next chapter. Just imagine you are hearing or reading these words for the first time. And you know it's a prophecy and a prophecy that's going to look for fulfilment in events close to hand. You see, in this prophecy, you're being invited to believe that in what follows, in the story of Jesus, God is saving his people. God is saving them through his promised king. God is bringing the big salvation, the salvation promised his people at the end of the age, full and complete. What will you think as you read on in the story of Luke? Well, at first you might be surprised that such a saviour would be born in a stable but encouraged by the connection with David and the praise of the angelic host. And as you see, people healed, the blind, the deaf, dumb, blind getting their sight, deaf hearing, the dumb speaking. As you see the dead raised, like the widow of Nain's son, as you hear people's sins forgiven, like the paralytic raised, lowered down through the roof, to whom Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. As you see visible, tangible evil, oppressing spirits driven away, as you see peace and wholeness brought to so many lives, you start to think, yes, Zachariah's probably speaking the truth. But as you read on, you, you might be puzzled. You might start to wonder if that is actually the case. I mean, the Roman invaders seem completely untroubled by Jesus. He doesn't seem to counter or reverse their rule, their invasion of the promised land. There's no combat, no great display of military might like, well, David. And the religious authorities, those who ought to know what God's doing, they don't welcome Jesus. In fact, they oppose him. And those most zealous for God, well, the Pharisees, they also reject him and what he claims. So you might be puzzled. And as you came to the latter part of the story, and as in your imagination you hear the sound of the nails being hammered into Jesus' hands, 
You'd say no. Zachariah is lying. Now, in, in saying that, you may like Jesus, you may admire him, you may think he's dying a noble, a martyr's death for the cause of truth and love. It might grieve you to say no. But in succumbing to the hostility of his enemies, in not overcoming them, but being overcome by them, in leaving his people, his followers, in their power as he's killed by them, there's none of the promised deliverance or rescue there, is there? The cross is not light but darkness. It's not life but the reign of death. It's not the picture of peace with God but our sad world, a place of confusion, ambiguity, poverty, grief and injustice. The cross would seem to deny Zachariah's words. But even if it's hard to persevere through the disappointment of that, you keep reading. And you find those broken, fearful first followers of Jesus changed, proclaiming Jesus has risen, that he's actually beaten death in the only way we can know he's beaten death, in his body, risen in the body in which he died, to be touched, seen, spoken with, eaten with, alive. More, you find that he's actually been raised by the Lord, Israel's God, the creator and only God, the only one who can give life to the dead. And so you know then that every word Jesus spoke, every claim he has made is vindicated, especially the claim to be God's ruler with the authority to forgive. And you learn that this forgiveness is now to be proclaimed to all. Jesus, taking his disciples to the word of the scriptures, the word Zechariah says, Jesus' birth and coming was fulfilling, says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. And you see that all that Zechariah spoke, Jesus fulfills. His is the inextinguishable light, the light of truth that drives away our ignorance and fear of God, the light of life that drives out the fear of death, the shadow over all our lives because he can give life. He is mightier than any other king. His now is an unending reign and yes, he brings peace. And having beaten death, living forever, he brings all that is promised even to you and I. Forgiveness, light, peace, peace with the Lord, the only God, the God of the whole earth, the righteous and holy judge, peace in our turmoil, anxiety, confusion and pain. The forgiveness, light and peace Zacharias sings of are for us. Now I know that all of that can sound abstract if you have never experienced it. So what does it mean for you and I to have peace with God? How does it affect the way we experience life now? Let me give you an example. Have you sensed again, as you've watched the temperatures soar, felt the dryness of the landscape, witnessed fires consuming forests and homes, just how frail and small our lives are, how frail our prosperity and plans, seen that all can be lost, at a change of wind direction or by the withholding of rain? Have you felt that frailty 
even that fear for ourselves and those we love, recognising that our lives are subject to powers we have no control over. That's true, isn't it? We can't make it rain and we can't change the direction of the wind. What difference does it make to have peace with God, the God of Jesus? Well, firstly, we confess that what we cannot control, he does. The God who raises the dead is the God who made the world. He directs the wind. He sends or withholds rain. He is Lord of all. And we confess that in all things he acts justly and righteously because the God who, who sent his son to die for sin is passionate about justice. And he acts in faithfulness in all things to his word. And he doesn't owe us prosperity or what we've come to expect as a normal life. In fact, we recognise that as a nation we've done much to provoke his judgement, whether it's in treating asylum seekers cruelly for whatever we think of the need to control borders, seven years' detention on Manus Island is disproportionate, or whether it's sexual immorality or greed or the pride that dismisses the living God and idolises self We've done much to provoke his judgment. Soaring temperatures, changing climate, fires are a reminder that we are creatures, not creator. And they're a reminder that God is an active and righteous judge now and will call all things into judgment at the end. And trusting Jesus, we humble ourselves under his mighty hand because we are not threatened by a recognition of our frailty. We've recognised that and embraced that in our confessing our need for a saviour. And taught by him, we've learned to say, Lord willing, in all that we do. Oh, and we are no longer fearful of his just judgment, trusting his promise that the Lord Jesus, this son of righteousness, has died for our sins and been exalted with authority to forgive us our sins. We know that we are forgiven and now at peace with him, and that he has promised, as you heard, to work all things, even these terrifying and heartbreaking events, for our good. So at peace with God, we're not overwhelmed with anxiety and fear. Rather, we thank him for this reminder of his sovereign judgment that teaches us we should not share any longer in the sins of the society in which we live, and that teaches us to have our security and hope in Christ not in our prosperity in the world, because peace with God gives hope. And having peace with God, we are freed now to think of others and how we can love them. So at peace with God, knowing all our prosperity comes from him, as we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, we share willingly our resources with those in need, and we seek the welfare of the society in which we live by serving where we can, looking not just to our own interests but the interests of others. And we pray to the living God who does direct the wind and send the, prain, the, send the rain for mercy, mercy on our firefighters, mercy on the devastated creation and the mercy that will bring people to humble themselves and turn to God. And at peace with God through Christ, we know the Lord hears our prayers. You see, peace with the living God is wonderful. It's a defence against fear, a source of hope for the present and the future that moves us to action in love 
and to turn to, not away from, the only one who can deliver us, the righteous God, awesome in power and justice, the God of steadfast love and faithfulness. The salvation Jesus was promised to bring, he can bring to all for all time. He's not some little local saviour, some warrior hero of an ethnic group. He's not some passing political reprieve from oppression, nor does his word just bring temporary solace in a sea of affliction. He is the powerful sun that shines his light on all the earth, giving light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, guiding our feet into the path we cannot find by ourselves, the way of enduring peace. He is the bringer of the salvation of the end of the age that starts now with peace with God through forgiveness of our sins and will come to fulfilment in the new heaven and earth where there'll be no evil, no violence, no lies, no pain or grief or tears, no death. So if you're hearing Zachariah's word, his prophecy of what the coming of Jesus means for the first time, if you've never thought of the Jesus born in the stable as Zachariah presents him, let me encourage you, read on in Luke. Read the Gospel's defence of that claim. Be guided by his word to find peace, to know peace in trusting him. And if you want help with reading on, and understanding that word, come and speak to us. But if you hear Zechariah's word and your heart thrill because you know the Lord is faithful to every word he utters, know it like Zechariah because you've experienced his faithfulness to his word, experienced his faithfulness in being forgiven through trusting Jesus, in coming to know the warmth and clarity and confidence the light of Christ brings, in knowing peace with God as you follow Jesus, well, show you know by serving him now without fear as you will serve him in the new heaven and the earth. Worship is served and resolve to live that life of genuine relationship with the Lord, the living God that Jesus came to bring, that life where you live in holiness and righteousness, doing his will. Loving what God loves, truth, faithfulness, love, mercy, justice, hating what God hates, unkindness, lies, idolatry, greed, hypocrisy. Oh, give yourself to what God loves and hate what God hates and praise him in all circumstances for such a saviour and such a salvation. That's what Zechariah did, praised him, proclaiming in the power of the Spirit the wonder of God's faithfulness, the reality of his salvation in the baby Jesus yet to be born. If you're a believer, we have the same Spirit and we can praise the Lord as those who know, who know who this baby grew to be, the Lord, and what the baby grew to do to guarantee this end time, final and full salvation, this forgiveness and peace through his death. We should be a people who live praising our saving God and in our praise sharing the joy of knowing the Lord is faithful, the faithful saviour of his people who fulfils every word he has spoken, who has saved them forever by his Son, born of a virgin, Jesus. We should share that joy because people are still in darkness. 
They're still in the shadow of death. And they're still in a world of fear and turmoil, longing for peace. And that may be true even of the people with whom you will sit down and share your Christmas table with. Let them know in your praise that in God's faithfulness and mercy, the sun has risen upon us in all his glory to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of that glorious peace with the living God. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we pray in your mercy that like Zechariah we would be convicted of the truth of every word you utter and we would know that truth for ourselves as we believe your promises to us in Jesus. We would know that forgiveness of our sin. We would know that hope of eternal life and we would know and live out every day the wonder of being at peace with you, the living God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.